you had the chance, would you change the world? Welcome. I am your host, Ebony Gustav, and this is Cooperative Journal, where I interview mutual aid initiatives and cooperatives from around the world who are creating alternatives to our current economic system. Essential Food and Medicine is a mutual aid initiative based in Oakland, California, that actually started during the pandemic, but they've done an incredible amount of work in a short period of time. The co-founders integrated their love for community connection, food security, sovereignty, plant and holistic medicine to create a resource to meet all of those essential needs for people. They reclaim surplus and locally grown produce to make juices, soups, smoothies, and natural medicine for underserved communities for free. In this episode, I speak with co-founders Social Moreno and Achelle Eldridge. In the first half of the conversation, we speak about Essential Fam as a whole, like the voids they are filling, how they built the partnerships needed to supply the resources, how they distribute the medicine, and then we start to talk about Cobb on Wood, which is a community built with Cobb they co-created in a homeless encampment. It has a free store, free health clinic, kitchen, bathroom, and community events to empower residents and have a safer environment. We speak about the history of Wood Street, benefits of building with Cobb, how they raised money to build, the impeding and rapidly increasing issue of homelessness in California, why they are facing eviction, and how you can help. Okay, hello, Social and Achelle. Welcome to the podcast. I was actually introduced to your work from seeing Cobb on Wood just pop up on my Instagram feed, and I was obsessed. And I shared it to my friend in Oakland, and they were like, oh, you have to reach out to Essential Fan. They're the ones that are actually running Cobb on Wood. And they had volunteered with you and just spoke really highly of the work that you're doing. And so I found out that you guys are doing really amazing mutual aid work to combat hunger, lack of access to health care and homelessness. And so I would love for you to share what Essential Fam is and the inspiration behind its creation. Well, Essential Food and Medicine was birth, uh, first and foremost out of uh, beginning of COVID, like last uh, March, April, when we were hearing reports of, you know, folks should shelter in place or they should wash their hands. Um, and these type of comments coming from the media, from the CDC, and realizing that there was a large group of our neighbors and relatives in our community that were, were unhoused and don't have access to shelter. So how would they shelter in place? How would they keep that, their hands washed in, in these, some of these essential services? Um, and I think, you know, I was doing more like sort of juices, smoothies, more, um, you know, had a juice company. So I was working in that space of like phytonutrients and live foods and health and wellness through food and then in food justice work. And then so, oh. you know, she can tell more about her. She's in the fourth year as medical, medical herbalism, you know, so she was already doing mutual aid work to the, for the house, this taking food from OUSD, Oakland Unified School District and delivering oh. it down to one of the largest encampments in the West Coast, um, which is like this wood street encampment. Um, I think some 100 to sometimes 250 people, individuals, sort of transient in that space. 
And so we sort of paired up and was like, well, noting that simultaneously there was a lot of food that was going fallow because restaurants were closed down. There was a rush of food that was going into food banks. A lot of people contacting us from, from, um, from their homes and seeing they had a bunch of oranges, lemons in their backyard. Um, and I think, you know, psychologically, when there was a pandemic, a lot of folks start to do a lot of outside gardening, things like this to occupy themselves and sort of instinctually went to the earth, you know. So our thing within a week was looking at the situation and looking at the root solution. What is the root solution to this issue? Regardless of where you fall and what you think about the pandemic or the solutions to it, um, out of alignment with the earth always came up, you know, out of alignment with ourselves and with spirit always came up. So noting that there was all this food, which is in our, our perspective is almost like sacrilegious when there's hungry people that would go to the waste streams. We're like, how about we take that, repurpose it, turn it into juice, smoothies, uh, soups, um, you know, natural medicines, tinctures, things like this, um, and actually support the most vulnerable amongst us. So out of that, roughly, that created essential food and medicine. A week later, we were like, let's call it essential food and medicine. It's a nod to all the essential workers that are out there. We were like, wow, what's more essential than, than food um, and medicine? And the love, actually, the energy and attention that goes inside of that. That's really what's transformative. Um, so at some point in the process, I think during December, one of the residents at the you know, Wood Street residence was like, well, this is great. You know, we get to receive the juice, the smoothies, all of that. Um, but really, we want to co-create something. We want to create a kitchen. And we want to be a part of that process of making it. That's going to be most dignified for us. So from there, that's what um, it started. We, we linked up with someone who was at one of our previous events called uh, What's Your Medicine? We had a couple of events like that. And what's your medicine essentially was an event where we were like, wow, instead of this top down us sharing medicine or people receiving, how do we create a horizontal skill share with folks in a community able to offer their gifts of herbal care, acupuncture, wound care, um, end up having some 30 different practitioners, even musicians, uh, a whole host of folks that provide that medicine as we saw it. You know? um, and then from there, you know, the residents were like, wow, that was great. Can you do it next weekend? And we were like, whoa, this took a lot of effort and work to create this. We even had film screenings that were from, you know, other houses folks, you know, who explored their creativity. We had an open mic to show it you know, for storytelling. We even had one later, What's Your Medicine, that had a town hall where residents could organize amongst that only eviction defense. Um, so from the What's Your Medicine, the kitchen was created, Sir Kabbalat, Miguel Elliott, who's a master cobber. He was at one of the Western Medicine events and created a, a, a oven, a pizza oven, an outdoor cob oven. And that led to the cop kitchen. Um, and then from there, it became a cop shower, a free store, a cop clinic, um, and more structures like that. So here we are now. And we're in phase two, which is more about programming and getting it up and running. We have stipended resident leadership um, in, in, in terms of like the clinic, the kitchen, the free store. But now we're like, okay, well, how do we utilize the resources that we have on the project 
and actually deliver on certain programming that the residents request and that actually get at the root causes of houselessness and the root causes of sort of issues in our world today. Wow, incredible. So at first it started from you just getting donations from people in your community or how did you get the donations to start making medicine and food? Well, it all kind of happened um, in beautiful synchronistic fashion where I had, as Michelle mentioned, been been doing um, work through the Bay Area Mutual Aid Network of picking up food from uh, the Oakland Unified School District that was being offered to families uh, because of the situation of the pandemic. And so, you know, these were bags of, you know, lunch items, frozen pizzas, things like this. Um, and and so we were, you know, picking that up a couple times a week, uh, as well as food from food banks, um, like the ECAP here that feeds thousands of people every day. Um, and, and then, you know, other prepared meals from, say, restaurants that were shuttered um, because of the pandemic, but then we're participating in these programs where, you know, it's maybe a, like, you know, a super fancy five-star Michelin restaurant, but that is, is actually, you know, making food uh, that's getting out to the unhoused population and they're being paid maybe $10 an item, um, a meal for this through a grant program that they've applied for. And so there are all these different kinds of opportunities um, in collaboration with people's, you know, backyards, as, as Michelle was pointing out, you know, we would get a call, hey, I have a lot of lemon balm, do you want to come pick it up? Um, and then, you know, also working in, in community uh, with different existing uh, farms and um, and community gardens. So places like Ashby Garden help create uh, a lot of medicine for us, um, place for sustainable living. And then um, we work in deep collaboration with the Giltrack Farm, uh, which is one of the, the largest outdoor farms um, for medicinal plants in the US. And so we share a lot of community with that network and um, and are able to then transform all of this um, surplus, what would, you know, potentially be going into landfills or, or just, you know, kind of going fallow that we're instead able to use, you know, our network and our, our teams to transform it into what we call liquid love. Uh, so that's, the soups, the juices, the smoothies, um, and the natural medicines. And so, yeah, there's many different streams um, by which we can receive um, these, these vital nutrients. And then, and then it's through our collective work and collective action that we're able to, you know, make them into something that can really meet people's needs that we believe aren't just about you know, maybe the physical hunger um, that you have in your belly when you wake up in the morning, um, but also really wanting to take it uh, deeper. And, and it's about the space um, for connection, that that interaction of, of giving someone a juice um, opens up, then you can ask, you know, how their day's going, what are the challenges that they're facing in their life, um, you know, and you get to know people. 
And so the work that EFAM um, has been engaged in over this past you know, year and some change um, and, and the work that, that Kamam Wood has been doing is really rooted in, in those relationships and in dedication to those relationships um, and to, you know, feeding the root causes of, of how we heal um, because it's, it's through that positive interchange and through, you know, treating someone with respect and with dignity um, that I think that we can really move mountains. Yeah, I think that your name could also be essential food as medicine, because that's essentially what food should be. And it is. And I think it's also gives people a sense of dignity and empowerment when they know that their source of food is coming from their neighbor's backyard or from a, a local farm. Like they know the source of their food. They know how it's grown in an ethical way. And, you know, that's to me, that's even better than getting food from a food pantry because it's it's a different connection. Because right now there's a there's this elitism that has been created through local food. But really, there is enough abundance for everyone at any income level uh, to receive local food. And I. I, I'm wondering, were you guys only focusing on the Wood Street residents or were you providing medicine as well to other? I know you were doing things with the Bay Area Mutual Aid Group, but were there other places as well? Yeah, we um, actually work with the elderly as well. So there was some um, SRO, some senior homes, resident housing that we provided every Friday. I miss those guys too. We provide the smoothies and have this, you know, play music with them and listen to their, their stories. It was really sweet. Um, and also, like, you know, there's just in general, there was just folks in the general community. So we offer for donation folks. We post a juice or something online. Folks can come through and get stuff and support the overarching programming. Or we might just call, call some people. Somebody's dealing with lung cancer and can't go into the hospital because they're immune compromised. And it was like a sort of like a, a weird situation there. It was like, oh, well, we can actually, we have a community member who makes lung, a lung honey tonic, you know, syrup. And then so we can get that to you. So I think the issues with, um, I think, you know, definitely, like you said, there's enough abundance of, abundance of food and, and medicine. I think a lot of it became being like switchboard between uh, those who have and those, those in need. And I think that's one of the big, those lines of communication and interrelatedness, I think those are the things that broke down during the pandemic that I think we have opportunity to rebuild in ways that are actually not a new normal, but like the, just in alignment with um, our humanity, actually, and built off relationships um, and direct service, because we see healing as like a direct action, actually, and a necessity at this moment. So, yeah. And, you know, and speaking of direct action, I mean, the medicines that we made um, went also directly to the front lines of, of folks that were standing up and calling for justice um, in, in last year's, you know, rebellions, calling for, for the justice for Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all our other slain relatives. Um, and, 
definitely being able to um, provide both like that, that just cup of nutrition or maybe a tonic that could help ease someone's stress um, or deal with tear gas, things like that um, felt really important and felt like, you know, just another um, arm of, of this tree of wellness. Um, and then, um, and then we also still serve um, about seven other encampments here in West Oakland, um, in addition to the Wood Street encampment, and, and then work with um, some different youth um, that were formerly unhoused, and that are now housed through folks in our network, um, and, and have actually, you know, kind of gotten transitioned off the streets and into, um, into, you know, kind of a, a new guardianship and, and system of care um, with people that are, are really loving and caring. And um, we've also, you know, supported uh, an unhoused mother um, through her first pregnancy um, and, and really tried to, you know, kind of not just raise money, but raise actual support um, for her. And, um, and I was, had the privilege of, of being present at her birth um, and, and so, you know, I think the ways, um, that, that healing happens and the ways that medicine reach people and, and the way that this network, um, has grown and that our, our essential fam, <laughs> the EFAM has grown, um, you know, looks so like so many different ways and, and profiles and, um, you know, today, when we finish this, I'm, I'm going to, to take Antoine, um, Mr. Antoine Jackson, who's um, a dear elder um, and who's lived across the street in his van um, for 15 years. Um, and he's now in, um, in a temporary housing situation um, and, and a big lover of our juice. Um, and so gonna actually take him to his, his new temporary housing situation today. Um, and so, you know, and yesterday was um, uh, his birthday. So, so he's, you know, nearly 80 years old and um, just really giving thanks for the life of, of, of this elder and, and all of the different ways that we can, you know, be in harmony and support each other and, and mend the sacred hoop. Yeah, and I just wanted to say, I think it was powerful. So check how originally at the beginning of the pandemic, it really showed Antoine if you want to speak a little bit about, about how he came over. And... Yeah, um, well, he and, and another resident, Robert, um, unhoused person, you know, I, at the beginning of, of everything, I, you know, thought to myself, like, should I, you know, kind of head for the hills, go live with my friends on their farm? Can I get out of Dodge? Um, and, and I was sitting with that question and I was actually in a house meeting, um, you know, talking about all of these big changes and there was a knock at the door. Um, and, you know, it was one of my unhoused neighbors um, who came and they wanted to deliver a tea set. Um, and he said, Hey, I, I know you really like teas. Um, and uh, I thought that, that this is a stressful time. And, and I know that, you know, that you might 
enjoy this. And, and I just wanted to, to check in on you um, and, and just see how you were doing. Cause you know, I, I felt like you might, might be worried. Um, and, and that moment, you know, when, when he gifted me this tea set um, and came to check on me um, and, you know, he doesn't have a roof over his head and, um, and he was just checking up on his neighbor. Um, that really felt important. Um, and for me in that moment, that was when I decided um, that I, it was important to stick, stick around, you know, um, and to actually be able to provide that same level of support and care um, that my neighbor was showing for me. Wow. I really needed that story myself, actually, because I go back and forth in my own head like, oh, it'd be so much easier if I'm just living off of the land and I don't have to deal with all of these external things. But then there's so much service I could be providing in a space like this where I am. So why escape? Because it's easy for me, like in a way that's kind of selfish. And yeah, that's and I also I'm just thinking of like all of the ways your name essential fam can be interpreted even the idea of family like building that community of love and care that is so healing like even if he would have just came over and said hey i'm just thinking of you how are you doing just him caring um thinking of you means so much you don't even have to have things just like being present for someone is so healing and that's incredible that you're a part of this transformation and this new beginning in his life and that the work you guys are doing which is really i'm astonished at how much you're doing in such in such a short period of time um but the fact that you guys are having personal relationships with people, I think makes all of the difference because there's a lot of charity groups that come in and they're giving things to like large groups of people. But to have those one-on-one -on -one connections, I think makes all of the difference. And, and people really, I think reciprocate that even more. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, what we've found is that, the work that we do certainly does ripple out. Um, and, and as a result of, you know, I think like when we had the what's your medicine event, for example, um, this last one, we had been invited to a resident outreach or a resident meeting that they had started organizing themselves. And they were like, Oh, you know, kind of, we see y'all are getting organized. Like, like we're going to, get ourselves together too. Um, and so they started these Thursday night um, resident meetings to talk about trash collection, to talk about, um, you know, what was going on with people setting fires, um, to talk about illegal dumping, um, and just like how to keep each other safe. And so then after being invited to that meeting, we were super inspired. And we were like, hey, like, how can we have this same kind of town hall, or like this same meeting, but as a town hall and have even more folks, um, you know, at the table. And, and so then we got inspired by that and implemented that. And then, you know, since then that has spread and spread and, and 
it's really as a result of, you know, that, that connection and you never know what will happen out of just one connection. Um, so really for me, that means like trying to show up to each interaction with integrity. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like out of the pandemic and this virus being spread, it's actually had a ripple effect for like love to be spread. Like there's so many mutual aid groups that have stemmed out of the pandemic and that are workshopping ideas with each other and being inspired with by each other. Uh, and I really hope that it's not an ephemeral thing and these things last beyond the pandemic because this is just an example of what we can do on a daily basis and that people with wealth can distribute it evenly. Um, and so I'd love to learn more about uh, Wood Street and some of the history behind this space that you guys have turned into Cobb on Wood. Yeah, I just wanted to say, yeah, just in response to what you just said, I mean, it doesn't have to step, it's up to us, right? Like we, we get to choose and say how these next chapters go for everyone. Um, so it's, it's not, it's, it's up to us to continue that. And I think one thing is a part of what's happening within the, within every poison, there's medicine. So within every poison, there's medicine. So you just have to look for it and you have to be able to sit with it and be in it enough to extract the medicine out of it. Right. So there's values that came out of this, like, you know, around like dignity for humanity. That's a big one. Even though, you know, we were bringing food from OUSD and different places, we realized like in actuality, um, you know, we wouldn't necessarily eat stuff out of a can. So why would we serve stuff out of a can? Why don't we put some love into it? Um, we started to learn that like, yeah, there's, there's actually equality, equality in a sense, um, even through the, the known, the perspective of the disparities, which are very real, there's actually, we need to redefine wealth because I've sat and learned riches from the minds of people who are unhoused. You know, I've gotten rich my life tremendously through that. So I think a big part of this moment is like, you know, building, breaking down those, those walls a little bit to like look each other in the eye and see that common humanity and build something that's long lasting and real, yeah. Um, and so she wanna talk about carbon wood? Yeah, well, so to zoom back, um, Wood Street is one of the largest encampments of internally displaced or unhoused people uh, on the West Coast. And as Michelle was saying, it's a transient population. So that means there's you know, anywhere from say a hundred to maybe upwards of 300 people um, that are, are calling that, that home for that day, any given day. And so that population looks like um, people living in RVs um, or like shantytown style shacks, um, people living in their cars that might work or might not. Um, people living in tents, um, you know, maybe some people living in tents that they've lived in for a long time. Maybe some people um, living in a tent that are just recently unhoused. Um, 
you know, and, and maybe someone who's just passing through for just, just a night um, and doesn't have any shelter at all. And so there's a wide breadth of, um, of what it looks like to be unsheltered. Um, and this piece of land actually used to be um, a wetland about 10 years ago. Um, 10 to maybe 15 years ago, it still was a, a protected wetland. Um, it's very close to the Port of Oakland um, and was a bird sanctuary. And over time, um, because of the impact of industry and uh, because of the effects of, of gentrification um, and, and just all of the different forces kind of compounding on top of each other, um, this land started to transform. And it had always been a place where, um, you know, local kids in the neighborhood in West Oakland, um, and, you know, just to like name West Oakland just down the road um, on Ninth Street is where the Black Panther Party formed. Um, this is a, a neighborhood that has historically been a place of resistance and resilience um, and has also um, been a place that's been, you know, heavily impacted by violence, both institutional and state violence um, and, and, you know, kind of intergenerational trauma and, and internal violence. And so, you know, this community holds a lot and, and the people that have grown up in it um, are, you know, facing many different challenges. Um, and this community has been changing. Um, it's also a place where people um, who are, you know, moving from San Francisco and um, want to live close to the, the BART train um, and live close to the city, um, you know, live in their nice fancy apartments. Um, it's a it's a neighborhood that is undergoing a lot of change and shift, and so yeah, folks that grew up in in West Oakland would often you know go down to this the area that is now the Wood Street Commons or the Wood Street Encampment, and um, and play catching baby frogs um, or skipping stones, um, and it was their playground. And so then as those same people um, got older and the challenges they were facing compounded um, and maybe, you know, they lost their family home, um, you know, homes that people had had traditionally lived in for, from, you know, quite a few generations um, got lost because of um, predatory lending or because of, um, you know, uh, eviction through eminent domain or, or all of these different kinds of, of factors that lead to people's displacement, um, that then they became unhoused. And so oftentimes they went to the same place that they found refuge in their childhood. Um, and they went and created a community um, out in, in what we now call the Wood Street Commons. Um, and so that community grew um, and, and, you know, maybe 10 years ago um, is when folks in Oakland started pitching tents um, and 
And so then little by little, um, these, these tents would kind of, uh, you know, tent communities would spring up all over the city. Um, but Wood Street was always the place that um, would receive the influx of folks being displaced from other areas. And so if, um, you know, you had, you were parked in your RV for too long or, or a tent um, community, you know, got a little bit too large, um, DPW or the uh, Oakland Police Department would come in and say, all right, folks got to go, but you can go down to Wood Street um, and you won't be messed with. And so Wood Street then became um, the end of the line for so many people. Um, and it, you know, is where you go if you have nowhere else to go. Um, and it's also where you go if, you know, you really are just trying to live outside the the, the nitty gritty and, and kind of the confines of, um, of that city life and system, right? Um, because it's a place that exists in, in its own microcosm and it has its own rules and it has its own systems, right? Um, and so, so it grew and, and, and the community there also um, is a place where developers um, or contractors you know, who are, are making or remodeling homes um, come and they use it as their own private dumping ground. Um, and, and there's a lot of industrial waste um, that's there or, you know, the estate sale happens, they don't wanna pay a dumping fee, they bring it and they dump it down at Wood Street. Um, and so there's a lot of trash and excess debris um, and it is, you know, a, it's a situation there's also a lot of cars. Um, it's even said that the, the Oakland Police Department themselves comes and drops cars that they don't know what to do with um, there that are stolen. And folks, um, you know, kind of use the cars uh, for scrap metal and recycle the metal and parts. Um, so it's a very unique place um, and, and has different land holdings from the city of Oakland to Caltrans um, to the uh, the state of California, and then also some some private entities as well own all of you know different sections of what is the the Wood Street Encampment or the Wood Street Commons, and so you know it's a very dynamic population. And after our work there, um, you know, over about a year, uh, we had been you know developing these relationships, getting the medicine out. And uh, there was other mutual aid groups doing, you know, different but similar kinds of work, like artists building communities um, who was building tiny homes for people. Um, and, and then the residents saw this different styles and, and kinds of work. And, and that was when folks came to us and, and they said, yeah, hey, can we collaborate and and build a community kitchen. Um, and then the community kitchen turned into a, a community clinic and then a free store. And um, we've got a big garden plaza and a stage for open mics and um, really just like a place where community can thrive and, and come together and also do so 
in a way that isn't regulated by some state agency. Um, you know, we've got a shower there and a lot of the residents talk about the dignity and, and the power um, that they receive from being able to take a shower on their own terms and on their own timing. Um, and something like that may seem really um, small or insignificant, but, you know, folks before, some folks, maybe they were only getting a shower once a month, every couple weeks. Um, there are, you know, showers that kind of come through there um, every Thursday. They park out in the front and, and you have seven minutes to get in, get undressed, have your shower and, and get out. Um, and, and so for the ability for people to um, be able to be on their own time frame and know that it's always there if they need it. Um, our, our kitchen is open and available for folks to come and utilize 24 hours a day. Um, the supplies in the clinic, you know, from from harm reduction supplies like, like needles or gauze or Narcan um, that might save someone's life in the case of an overdose, you know, to the, the tinctures and salves and, and, and natural medicines that can, you know, kind of help ease anything from the heart to the mind. Those are also available for people um, on their own time as well. And, and so, you know, really just kind of trusting um, the community and, and allowing people their sovereignty um, so that we can also have our sovereignty when we all come from that place of, of you know, like just trusting in our highest self and, and being in integrity. I think it allows the invitation um, and the opportunity for others to do the same. Yeah, it's so interesting that it used to be a bird sanctuary and that that transformation into what it is now happened so quickly and that you guys are creating a new type of sanctuary for the people. And it seems like it's been an autonomous community for a while and it's been a place where the police kind of doesn't touch it. Um, but I know that it was not the safest place um and maybe you can speak to that as well um but you guys have created things to make it safer by having a kitchen um for instance also communal and meeting all of their basic needs within this small vicinity which is really incredible and I also love the idea of it being called the Wood Street Commons because it really is for the people, by the people. And, um, and I like that they approached you to build with them. It wasn't like you guys came in and said, hey, this is what we think you need, but that you were meeting the needs collaboratively. And I would love for you to speak a little bit about the design, um, which I think would also speak to how safe the community is or how much safer now it is. Um, yeah, so speak a bit about Cobb and what went into that process. Yeah, so, um, you know, so Miguel Elliott 
He's one of the main builders. Um, like I said, he's a you know, permaculture expert, like in terms of cop, natural building expert um, that was inspired by the Western Medicine event and built the, the pizza oven, the cob pizza oven. And, you know, what we were interested in was like, it was like, wow, like, should they be mobile? Should they not? You know, like, how do we actually get this to be sustainable in the context of like relationships with Caltrans, which some of the land is structures are on and also with the city because there's a lot of sort of like negotiations and political conversations happening about the space right so we want to do something that was in that framework so it's like so we made a choice to not build actual housing right there but build community support structures what we start calling them that support the community and support you know again basic needs so we were also interested so we started a stipend process and again all of this stuff is like you know, it's all work in process, even like the idea about safety. And it's just like, wow, what do we need to do to create community um, security? Um, we're all, we're in the learning around all of this because to say that it's like completely safe or whatever, it's like we're working on building it from the resident, from the ground's roots. And it takes that, that heavy lift. So in the context of the cob wood, cob and wood in the cob building, um, you know, we started off, it's like, you know, we had these intentions of like making it completely communal in terms of um, residents, um, even like taking on the education of learning how to build the cop structures themselves. Um, that's happened in different situations, in scenarios, but honestly, not as much as we would like. And that was a learning that we're taking to like phase two and phase three. So just cause I know other people are thinking like, how do you create this? one thing to very much know is to move slow. You know, we had a lot of community buy-in around like, yeah, we want those structures, those are awesome. And we built those, but our intention was not just to build something, even just build something with the residents um, input or like go ahead and green light. It was more like, well, let's build this site more like a workforce development opportunity, a Skillshare opportunity. Um, so, you know, so we rolled that out and we got the, you know, the cop, we still have a, a, another clinic make, make, create that's natural building in Cobb. But a lot of the Cobb, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, it used trash from the existing area. Um, I remember when we had the Aztec dance, before we had the Aztec dancers in a Western medicine event, the first one, it's really deep ritual of just like reclaiming the land and re-energizing uh, the land and cleaning the needles off the land and trash out of the land and disposing of it correctly. But also like, wow, let's take some of this that's here and actually utilize it with the clay in the process of the building the cob, cob structures. And where we put, you know, even where we pull out wood pallets from the builds that the, the shorter infrastructure for a cob building, um, we made sure it was like locally sourced um, or either donated. So we kept more like an ecological mind around it. Um, and I think these next phases, as we build in like resident leadership around and work with residents around maintaining the space and taking ownership of it. Um, we're looking at instituting more programming because every step of the way you get, again, the poison exposes the medicine. So every step of the way you get information and it's fine. It's like a really beautiful process to be like, oh, wow, this didn't work, this worked. And be like, okay, for example, there's a digital divide when we try to organize meetings with residents, right? 
there's like phones getting lost like all the time, phones getting cut off, things like this. So we realized, well, we have to actually be there present and actually do a lot of outreach. Big ups to Soch would be, you know, she did a lot of outreach. I mean, sometime before a meeting, you may have had to go out for an hour before, half an hour before, just to grab everyone for a meeting. You know, like to, to make sure that there's a, that resident input on all the steps of the process for what's happening there. Versus like doing things expediently because we think we know we got the ideas for it and let's just let's just go for it, right? Those can create problems later, right? So you really want to take that that slow approach and that personable approach and really like you might have to go pick people up. Um, but then it also led us to the, the the medicine of noting like, yeah, maybe we need to build a Wi-Fi station so people can process their, their paperwork for their IDs or their social security or whatever they need to do. Um, or yeah, we need to bring in more, you know, professional, you know, mental health professionals, professionals to deal with some of the, the reasons why certain, you know, resident participants have issues, you know, you know, sitting in a meeting for a certain time period without getting frustrated or, you know, sort of dealing with these underlying trauma that, that we all carry, but like really listening to see what's the next peg that we can stand on to cross the river of liberation, collective liberation, yeah. So I just wanted to be transparent about that. Yeah, like it's a lot of things that happen at, in the area. And I think the things that we're doing is trying to get to the root of it versus like, you know, some of the some of the 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 solutions that have been prescribed thus far, like in terms of policing or um or just throwing money in a situation, right? Like for example, you can throw you can put money on a house, but you can't really there's there's no price tag on a home. So like home is created by a certain different kind of energy, right? You can put money in sort of like getting people food, but that doesn't necessarily get people nourishment, right? So again, it came down to a values issue with where society is and where society is needs to go to actually have um, sort of horizontal leadership and like clear like pathways to collective liberation. I know social by add on to that. Beautifully spoken, Michelle. Um, really, always appreciate how you weave in um, just like this this larger lens in such a poetic way. Um, so, yeah, I guess what I would add on is more about the just kind of the structures themselves, um, and you know, noting that Cobb is an indigenous technology. Um, that it has been used by people around the world for thousands of years. Um, and, you know, when we think about like permaculture um, and the natural building movement and, and things like this, you know, sometimes it's easy to um, forget that the roots of these new concepts or ideas are, are rooted in indigenous knowledge um, and indigenous practice. And so always um, giving thanks to and asking permission of um, the original peoples um, of the lands that we're on and and then also, you know, of, of whose knowledge we're using. So this technology um, has been adapted for our, you know, kind of modern use and it's a hybrid of Cobb um, that was developed by um, Migs, Miguel Elliott of Living Earth Structures. 
and um, how it works is, yeah, we we find pallets, and these the particular ones that we used were literally found like across the street um, from Wood Street um, from a, a shipping company, and so they would just stack them outside. So we're like, perfect. Um, and we brought them over and, and then started framing up, um, the structures and creating the, you know, the frame. Uh, and then inside of the pallets, we stuffed them with, you know, like Ashel was saying, trash or, or materials that we found on site, things like discarded plastic bottles, um, or discarded clothing, um, and other, you know, kind of plastics, things like that. And, and then that was creating the layer of insulation um, for the structures and then cut, coating those um, with the mixture of sand, clay and straw, which is cob. Um, and then, you know, kind of plastering, doing a lime wash or lime, lime plaster finish to seal them up. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's how the structures got built. And so really trying to use regenerative principles of, of seeing what, um, what resources were around and available and what can be utilized um, for the building process. Um, and, you know, thus doing it in the most sustainable way possible. Um, and, you know, they've even got some living roofs on them. Um, and so able to grow right now, we're just growing succulents, but um, might, depending on how some air quality testing goes, um, think about growing some other things too. Yeah, I just wanted to add too that we have something that's not necessarily hot, but a shout out to Veronica from um, Earth Mandala. Um, you know, it's Earth Mandala Arch. She has you know amazing projects that she does with just you know flowers and, and just the plants locally sourced. And she created a sanctuary that has all the elements there. Like you know, we have our sage there that was donated. Um, and so just big up to all the different organizations and individuals to make a, a, a community beloved, right? There's, it's not just, it's definitely not, not us, just us here in the cause, even our ancestors and the ancestors of the land and the energy of the land and a lot of different community-based organizations. But, you know, it's really beautiful to start utilizing the space that she created recently to, to identify it as a, you know, start doing some drumming with some of our um, Indigenous brothers and sisters at that space to sanctify, you know, sanctify the spaces like that. Yeah, we we with prayers, you know, and sit around that fire, and you know, put that tobacco in the fire and have everyone voice what their intentions are for the space. So that's a big part of the energy of the project. I would have to say is is the prayers, you know, or, um, just identifying like the power of, you know, this is four four and a half billion year old, you know, living being that we're really spiraling around in space um, not to be forgotten when we talk about solutions to anything you know so that's the that's sort of the basic ethos and spirit behind social food and medicine why cob and wood another thing with cob, with cob is that you know sometimes these cities were prescribing these these tough sheds and, and other solutions to homelessness that are flammable that you know full of formaldehyde different toxins um, and then we wouldn't necessarily live in those, 
why would we make you know why would we have somebody else live in those we, we produce something that a fraction of the cost that was community built um and then had you know and which brings that medicine if you're really interested in providing honest solutions to homelessness then we have to listen to residents when they say that actually community is medicine you know so a lot of it was intentional in terms of sure we use the cob because it's fireproof and then how we move forward with like this designing the space and, and actually moving forward is a lot with like sort of resident leadership and in providing um you know allow them to voice their own medicine right which is when you're able to share about something and share your perspective on something and have some autonomy that in itself can be very very healing beyond someone just giving you or saying you are part of the program and now you can stay here or not stay there or you can't have your family or community come visit you know because now you're you're in this program and you signed your name on this so now you get the you don't have the you know you don't have the freedom to say when when you who you can visit or and these type of things so a large part of it too in this space is like honoring the fact that there's people there that have been there 10 years and have beautiful ideas on how it could be a campus and how sure we want we want addresses um and we want regular dumpster service and we want regular you know all these things that request that aren't really um you know they really aren't hard deliverables especially when down the street when somebody comes up cash for a condo we can for certain for a fraction of that cost start um you know provide dignified solutions for people um that actually can spread like wildfire like for other places yeah to see like wow there's ways we can actually deal with this this, this homelessness issue that's holistic that includes all of them and also their own indigeneity and their own spirituality and own stories and family background wow you both speak so poetically like i'm sure so many beautiful quotes are going to come out of this conversation it's really so important to allow people the space to present their needs and trust that they know their needs and that we aren't the only ones uh, and have them be a part of that process of co-creation and I love that you guys have just helped to create such a holistic space like you said like it's reconnecting them back to self back to nature to their ancestors um and it's it's allowing them to remember and that in itself is so healing um to realize that their reality is not just what's in front of them, but there's so much more and allow them to change their perception about even things like trash. Like you guys have created this circular loop where there is no trash. The trash is being recycled for something else. Um, and I, I think it's also really empowering that you guys are offering a stipend so you're actually giving money to people to uh steward this land that you've created right yeah i was wondering if it's so you can talk about the resident cleanup and also the um like i talk a little bit about 
the, the composting things that we, we want to set up there. Yeah, so the trash piece is actually quite interesting. Um, it would certainly be our, our a goal to not have more trash, but unfortunately, the, the amount of trash that is that exists on that land um, is overwhelming um, and far more than we can use to insulate the walls of, of our humble structures. Um, however, um, trash has played a really interesting role most recently um, in regards to the resident-led cleanups. So as I mentioned before, the land there is owned by different entities. Um, one of them being Caltrans. Um, so now we get to the point of the story where we tell you that um, many of the residents um, that these structures serve are at risk of eviction. And uh, Caltrans plans to evict, um, you know, anywhere from one to 200 people um, anytime between now and July 1st. Um, we're looking at perhaps uh, June 29th. And so the community has been, um, you know, rocked by this and has been figuring out how to stand up um, and how to resist. And, and so some of the resident leaders um, started meeting with uh, folks from the city um, to talk about other kinds of issues. Um, and then these evictions came up. And so meetings had been taking place between um, the city council person, um, Carol Fife, um, who's actually was one of the leaders of the Moms for Housing struggle, um, which, you know, perhaps some of your, your listeners have heard of. It was an abandoned house um, that was taken over by a group of unhoused mothers. Um, and then we're able to have that, that transformed from ownership from, you know, a greedy developer into a community land trust. And Carol Fife went on to become our, uh, our uh, city council representative. So meetings were happening between her, um, the residents, other folks from the city administrator's office. Um, and then they were able to open the door for a conversation um, with some folks from Caltrans. And um, so negotiations began uh, that ended in verbal agreements where Carol Chambers of the Caltrans District 4 office um, said, okay, if y'all, you know, our main concern is the fires and all this trash. So if y'all clean it up, then you can stay in a nutshell. Um, so residents, you know, got together a plan and we're like, okay, we're going to do this big cleanup. Um, we figured out how to support them and a local artist um, called Gats, graffiti artist against the system, came, set up a sculpture. Um, we got some heavy machinery so that some of these abandoned cars that Caltrans had left under the freeway, um, which is the very infrastructure that they're concerned that their fires might, um, that the fires might damage left this flammable material underneath the freeway. So residents knew that that was a hazard um, and we were able to support them in, you know, getting forklifts um, and another, you know, kind of like bobcats and heavy machinery to be able to move the cars into a more central location um, and make it more um, fireproof. So 
and fire safe. So the residents then, um, you know, started this, this cleanup. And that very afternoon was the next meeting with Caltrans officials um, where they stated, hey, you know, it's all underway. Um, and then that was when Caltrans said, you know, okay, we got to review this. This might not actually, you know, we might not actually be able to hold up to our agreement. Um, so then that coming week, um, a, a slew of emails came out um, condemning the residents for their cleanup efforts and saying that they actually didn't have the proper training or hazmat certification um, to adequately deal with the toxic waste. Um, however, residents believe that, you know, they have all the training they need because they live on top of it every day. Um, it's the day in, day out of their reality. And, and they were fed up also with living with that kind of trash and in that kind of environment. Um, and so um, their efforts have continued um, every Sunday and will continue um, indefinitely. And, and so we've, you know, kind of created a rapid response network um, that outside folks can, um, can, you know, sign up for, for this rapid response network and be able to come in and um, they can text EFAM, EFAM, <laughs> um, to 833-526-0406. Um, it's texting EFAM to 833-526-0406. And that puts folks on the um, rapid response network um, to be able to come and get information on how to participate in the cleanups or how to put your body on the line um, when Caltrans does come in with bulldozers and try to uh, you know, evict and displace these residents that some of them who've lived on this land for 10 years or more. Um, but, you know, I think what's inspiring is that the residents are dedicated to continuing this process. Um, it doesn't matter that Caltrans sent out a cease and desist letter um, that actually wasn't even addressed to them, that was addressed to Carol Fife and to our organization, um, not to the residents leading the negotiations. Um, but they're, that they said, you know, it's important to us um, for our safety, for our dignity, um, for our well-being that we continue this. Um, and so our network um, with Cobb on Wood has been able to support um, by using some of the GoFundMe money um, that has come in that we've, you know, had the blessing of raising through people's um, kind, generous donations um, to be able to fund um, the stipend program for residents to, um, you know, participate in these cleanup efforts. Because, uh, you know, folks out there um, who, who might not, not know, you know, think that, oh, just because someone is unhoused that they have all the time in the world, right? Um, that, well, they don't have a job. Um, but actually the day-to-day -day, um, tasks of, of just keeping yourself um, fed and, and your basic needs being met um, takes quite a lot of time. And so the stipend program for that and, and other things like um, the kitchen, our community kitchen is stewarded by an amazing resident named Leger, um, the clinic by a resident named Lydia. Um, and so, you know, some of these 
positions are also stipended and, and we're really looking forward to expanding that program um, to be able to um, do you know, a more education-based series and, and things like this micro-business uh, program that Ashel can tell you about. Yeah, I just wanted to mention too that actually there's people out there who have jobs. Like you you may be, you know, folks and the listeners, like, you know, if you have folks who are in school or that you know or folks that you work at retail businesses with or even with certain government agencies, you know, you they might actually also be unhoused, right? Depending on where you live at and accessibility to, you know, uh, housing. So that's a that's thing something to note that this is like this could be anybody you know living in a situation and a big part of it is just breaking down these barriers and walls that a perception of like why people are out there this we can no longer tolerate we humanity cannot can tolerate this perception that folks just need to get a job or folks are just like you know they're just junkies or what you can't you, we can no longer tolerate that perception. It's it's like it's it's us. It's all of us. Um, just to speak to so the reason why we did in terms of the micro business stuff, um, you know what's exciting I think in which I'm really excited at proliferating this idea, especially for mutual aid networks, is that commons there should be a common in every city town that has a juicer and a blender. Why? Because one, phytonutrients to like live foods are really important for health and wellness, right? But also it helps break down a lot of food. Juice, like every, every common should have a juicer and a blender because with mutual aid networks, what we experience is, you know, people need a kitchen space. If you want to do soups or you need a refrigeration, that's just like crucial, right? To have a hub. Big ups to NorCal Resilience Network who early on had a lot of thinking around identifying what is necessary to have a resilient hub. Um, you need a space to store things. You need, that's for the community commons. So the juicer sort of breaks down a lot of produce and puts it in something that's easily delivered and digestible by folks who might have teeth issues even, right? You can't like chew a lot of things, right? So, but also it's high, high on nutrient impact. So really start looking at the practicality and he just marks off a lot of check boxes when we start talking about health and wellness is the juice and the smoothies. Um, and then even raw soups, things like this, right? Things that people can digest easily. But also what we started to find is that we don't necessarily want to just take the, the dregs of the, of the food system, a broken down food system, and just take the, the leftovers from that and then serve that up. And then thinking that we're making progress, creating a solution, we were like, well, how do we create industry with residents? and with the most vulnerable population. So one idea that we've been thinking about is like looking at compost. So when we do the juice, you have the perfect compost that is amazing food for, for vermiculture and for worms, which are, um, you know, really like dense nutrient for soil that can create this sacred hoop of actually having community members grow their own food and keep that cycle going again in a really beautiful way. As we know that a lot of food has low nutrient, um, you know, low amounts of nutrients in it based off of poor soil quality. So a big part of like health and wellness for the planet is actually like getting the, the biome straight, 
and making sure that it's it's alive, right? Because when the biome, when the when in shamanic studies, and the elders say they say when the earth is sick, the people are sick. So when the land is healthy, the people be healthy. It's it's not to be overlooked. Yeah, it's very important. So the soils are really important. So we're excited about that and looking at this conversation around like micro business, like like imagine having a house that's present folks that people had a perception of folks being like drugs of society. And now they're offering something that's that's crucial for everyone, the planetary health. You know, here's some compost that we created from all the mutual aid networks of food scraps, et cetera. And we're giving to you this fine, fine compost so you can continue to grow food and delocalize and localize your decentralize your food system, our collective food system. So that spawned a conversation around larger micro businesses. There's a lot of creativity out there in you know, some folks are like a couple of credits away from getting a master's or, you know, little things like that, that they they just eddied in this space with no one sort of tipping that scale a little bit. So we're hoping to utilize some of the funds that come up in concert with the residents describing and, and creating these programs that allow for more entrepreneurship, you know, so we can get some of that started. Wow. So not only are you guys providing programming to get at like the root level of people that may have uh, mental health issues, but you're also giving them tangible skills so that they can make money on Wood Street, but also outside of it. They now have skills they can take elsewhere. And that's so important. And it and yeah, it changes this perception and stigma that people have around homeless people that they're lazy or they're not ambitious. Maybe they just need a seed planted within them or seed money to get started uh, and have a sense of purpose. And this vision is because we're, we're open to collaboration and team building. So we put this out there. This is some things that we've have seeded on different levels, um, but it's, it requires team and it requires community and people who sort of understand the situation and have that skill set can come through and support. I want to go back to the eviction because that's really frustrating to me, especially because it sounds like this place has been a dump for a long time and now that you and others have collaborated to beautify this space, they want to come in and say the trash is an issue. When even before Cop on Wood, there was issues with flyers and trash, but I'm confused as to why now they decided. Is it because more eyes are on the space? A larger dynamic of um, displacement, truly. Um, so in October of... Uh, of 2021, um, this, excuse me, October of 2020, um, the city of Oakland passed the encampment management policy, um, which is uh, a piece of not even, it doesn't even have legislative teeth, um, but it's a, a general policy on how to deal with um, the challenge is of the crisis of, of homelessness that Oakland faces. Um, they say the official count is a little over 5,000 unhoused people. 
um, in, in Oakland. But those of us on the ground know that that number um, is, is likely double, if not more um, than that. And so, um, you know, encampments exist all over the city and in different, you know, capacities and styles. Um, and so it got more and more in people's face um, and something that you couldn't just, you know, pretend didn't exist. Um, and so for many people with privilege, that looked like frustration um, and saying, well, I don't like the blight. I don't like having to walk with my kid down the sidewalk and having, you know, these, these um, dirty people, um, you know, outside. Um, these people need to go or, you know, like this is, you know, interrupting with my flow of business. Um, and, and so um, the city, you know, developed this encampment management policy and has been slowly rolling it out. Um, so what's happening is then people um, from different encampments are, are being, you know, pushed to Wood Street um, in collaboration with the city's implementation of a, what they see as a blanket solution um, to this crisis. And, and that's um, these unhoused safe RV lots um, that people really find are neither safe um, nor a true solution. So the city has three existing lots already um, and they're, you know, like these little shacks um, that are referred to as the tough sheds. So it's kind of like a, a, you know, a glorified tool shed, um, not much insulation made of, as Michelle was saying, you know, kind of toxic materials um, oftentimes. And they cost a lot of money. Um, they, those, those tough sheds can cost upwards to $6,000 for just one. Um, Whereas some of the structures that we created um, and materials uh, really just cost around fifteen hundred. Um, however, you know, because they're now launching um, the their latest safe RV lot, um, the city and Caltrans are working together and using the opening of this new safe RV parking lot. Um, to justify the displacement of um, the people living in the phase two area of the Caltrans land. Um, and so it's disheartening to see, um, you know, kind of the state and city government working in cahoots in this way um, and, and justifying displacement. And under, they also understand, as do, you know, many people that, a majority of the residents um, that live at Wood Street won't go into that um, state-sanctioned lot, you know, that it's not actually suitable for their needs. Um, you know, people are in, in their, you know, small um, area. Um, there are a lot of times, like, kind of on top of each other. And that's not just a fire hazard, but also a behavioral health hazard. Um, many people that choose to live um, 
outside. And because for some people it is a choice, it's not all, um, you know, not every single unhoused person um, wants to live inside. Um, and studies show that the longer a person is unhoused, the more challenging it is for them to transition back into sheltered living. Um, and, you know, so people have complex needs um, and oftentimes really need some space. Um, and in addition to needing robust social services, um, like access to mental health care, um, addiction services, um, you know, really trying to address the root causes. So for this community, there's um, 40 slots for RVs and 120 proposed um, sheds or, or cabins. Um, and so that is, you know, only 160 uh, locations for people to live in. And, and as we said, the community is, is much larger than that. Um, and so this collaboration between the city and Caltrans um, is something that, you know, we're really trying to dissect and to say, hey, like, how can, how can we do things differently? And what are all the different kinds of people experiencing homelessness? Like, like what are the varying needs and what is the spectrum of what, what folks want and what they see as solutions? Um, and also naming that, you know, folks from the city have been trying to come out and have been attempting to have um, negotiations with residents and, you know, many of them like have been coming out in good faith um, from what we can tell. Um, and, you know, trying to have some kind of collaborative input process. Um, however, like so many times with government agencies, it just misses the mark. Um, and they don't have the capacity to fully hold the space or the conversations well. Um, and oftentimes, you know, people who are, are you know, kind of winning big salaries, um, to do this kind of uh, deep level of engagement are relying on us as unpaid community organizers um, to do some of that groundwork for them. And it also creates a, um, you know, a dynamic where, um, you know, that flow of, of information um, doesn't necessarily happen in the best way. And so while it's been encouraging to see some of the in, um, input from residents be incorporated into the design of the, you know, second half of this RV lot, we're, you know, also discouraged when we go, you know, when Leah, one of our, our court organizers, um, took some of the, the residents on a on a like field trip to go see some of the other cities safe RV lots to understand what it really looks like on the ground and to get a better picture. Um, and when, you know, they went on this um, exploratory mission, they found, you know, what really feels like, you know, um, and, and we don't use the term lightly, but concentration style camps um, where it's 
there's, there's just no life, um, where, um, you know, there's, it's, it's stank and, and, and stark and, um, there isn't really, um, that, that care, um, and there isn't really a space for people's needs to truly be met. Um, and so it's discouraging and disheartening, um, to see the city propping these up as, you know, these false solutions up as true solutions. Um, and so we believe that, you know, there are different kinds of needs that people have. Um, and for some folks, maybe going into a safe RV lot is an option. Um, for others, really being able to stay in place and stay where they are is, is the best um, solution um, until we are able to create systems um, by which they can find ways and pathways into things like supportive housing. Um, you know, supportive housing looks like um, somebody's getting, uh, you know, a subsidized rent while uh, additionally getting access to social services like mental health care and addiction support and the like, um, you know. And then another option are things like, uh, you know, community land trusts where people would be um, granted access or, you know, a land lease to a plot of land, whether that's on state right of way and, and something, you know, owned by someone like Caltrans, which is the largest landowner in the state, for example, um, and given the ability to, you know, have autonomy and live on the land, but also have access to, you know, the, the services of water, power, and, and sanitation. Um, and, you know, that's really what we're advocating for is this wide breadth of solutions and, and to creating, um, community review boards um, that actually have some muscle and some teeth behind them um, that are made up of, of unhoused residents that represent these varying um, ideas and needs so that they can have a seat at the table when, when folks you know, are, are making decisions about things that impact their lives. Wow. I don't understand why they wouldn't just initially come to you guys to collaborate and ask you know this seems to be working what did you guys do what have you implemented actually speaks to the residents about their needs and while they may be doing some things it really does come down to community and feeling comfortable where you are because people would rather some people would rather sleep on the street than be in a shelter because they don't have a sense of comfort they can't be alone and it's it's not meeting their needs so they're putting all of this money into creating these safe rv lots which they call a safe rv i'm sure to get people on board and lure people in to think that it's a solution to the issue um but the money could be put into for instance like you're saying giving a piece of land giving people social services, teaching them skills to get them out of this cycle instead of just putting them in a camp that's actually going to disempower them. 
And how cool would it be to have like mini Cobb communities where like, for instance, the people that helped build the one on Wood Street, then they could go to other homeless communities and teach them how to do the same thing. Like that would be so incredible. And I just don't understand why the city would rather put money into something that's really stale and not regenerative than something that would be. Because, you know, they're going to have to keep doing this over and over again instead of just building something that's sustainable. Like this is actually just going to exasperate the issue. Well, and, and yeah, you, you said it all right there. Um, and we wonder the same things. Um, and then, you know, also, I think you alluded to, to this, this situation that is brewing, um, where there is a 30% rise of, um, of people experiencing homelessness expected um, to happen in California, 30%. Um, maybe even upwards of 40% rise. And, and that's a lot of people. Um, and, and when polled most recently, um, homelessness is the number one uh, concern of people um, across California and in the Bay Area. And so, you know, it's no longer you know, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure the issues that were that were top of the list before, but right now this is. And so this is something that we need to address swiftly, um, but with slow, dedicated observation and time and really looking to organizations that have been doing this work, want to lift up the work of um, the folks from the village and Nita, um, you know, feed the people, people that, you know, have, have been in this, in this work for, for, you know, over 10 years, um, the work of folks um, at the Homefulness Project and, and Tiny and Multiado, um, you know, creating uh, poor people's network and, and um, poor people's media, media made by, created and for um, the unhoused um, from an indigenous lens. And, you know, they're creating, building their own homes. Um, and yeah, so many others that are- The Anti-Police anti Terror Project. Yeah. Yeah, Margaret Gordon, and Charles Reed at West Oakland Indicators, Environmental Indicators Project, you know, Long-Term Environmental Justice organization so yeah yeah so how do we you know kind of look to these these folks and these models um and to not have the state try and reinvent the wheel and doing so you know um in a way that's disjointed from community how do we open those doors and um you know create collaborative efforts. Um, and, you know, I think that also comes on us. It's like, sometimes, you know, like the old credit activist in me can be like, you know, F the state, like, I'm not gonna work with you. Um, but I think it's, it's up to us to um, find ways to be in collaboration that are supportive to our collective liberation. Yes, I completely agree. It, it needs to be a collaboration with the government because if not, then there's always going to be a conflict and usually initiatives that 
are completely against the government tend to not be sustainable, unfortunately. So yeah, how can we create something uh, that's more synergistic? And when you told me that the rise of homelessness is could be 30 to 40%, like I just got chills and heat going through my body at the same time. And I'm sure some of the listeners will feel the same way. And so how can they support keeping Cobb on wood at the least uh, sustainable? And so folks can can definitely, we go to, you know, you go to essentialfam.org, check out the website. Um, you can go to our Instagram pages at essentialfam or at Cobb on Wood. Um, and if people just want to tap in with us, they can do info at essentialfam.org as well. Um, yeah, so one, one thing I wanted to say really quickly was around this collaboration aspect. Because um, it gets, it's a delicate one, right? Especially with the history of, you know, organizing in this country and for social movements and for social change. So we have a precedent for understanding like, what is working and what's not working. Um, one thing we know that's important is decentralized leadership. So, so not identifying one particular person or individual. So building leaders, real leaders create real leaders, right? So leadership development is crucial because I know there's a lot of organizers might be listening. Um, and secondly, when we have these, like it's when we meet, the idea is to have meetings to, with stakeholders horizontally around a round table. And because it's a necessary precedent, so we can hold people accountable for where they're out of integrity with what they said on paper through their policies and laws or through their, you know, cultural competency, you know, washing that they do certain things, right? So it's not so much like, we need, we need organized to understand this, that it's not like, oh, these folks are like, they're like sleeping with the enemy or whatever, because that happens a lot of times too, divide and conquer is a real issue within organizing communities and we need to stop that. We need to meet with each other more, FaceTime, and also, you know, have conversations with people who are stakeholders, like just, just in real conversations that we can actually like see like, oh, this is what you, you what you need. We have these needs. Um, and then see what a common ground, because there is a common ground space and there's no, nowhere in there is a, a loss of integrity for the organizers on behalf of vulnerable communities. Um, and, no, and nowhere in there is a loss of backbone either. It's, you know, when you're going out, of, you build a relationship with somebody, you go out on a first date, <laughs> you you sit you sit around a table, it's, it's nothing wrong with that to have it. Because if anything, if you need to, you can look at it as intel, if you need to. But the point is, is that we're way beyond the point of like not having conversations, being in an echo chamber in our silos in claiming righteousness. This is not, not the time, you know? So I just wanted to say that just because I know folks are listening. Yeah, and also just to add on that Kaban Wood um, is, you know, certainly something that we're looking to invite collaboration around um, and whether, 
or not you're like a practitioner living in the Bay Area, you have some kind of healing modality that you want to bring to the table, or you're an educator um, and you're interested in, in sharing your knowledge and skills with this community um, and supporting residents and developing their own educational programs, or you know you are really passionate about compost and want to come help us implement this compost program um, or you know work on regenerative um, farming and agriculture like all of that is welcome and there's a space for all of that um, and then also just naming that this isn't just about cob on wood um, and if you feel inspired by some of what you've heard um, you know, how can you implement this in your own life and in your own community? Um, and, you know, it really just started with us, you know, saying like, there's a need, how can we do something? Um, and looking at, at the resources that we had available to us and the skills that we had. Um, and, and also understanding that this was, you know, these are our issues that existed before the pandemic and they will exist after, and here we are. And, and it's really, you know, up to us, it's up to us. We take care of us. Um, and so, you know, like may, may these words um, be just like vibrational seeds that plant themselves in, in the fertile grounds of our bodies, minds, and spirits. And, and may they grow and, and interweave and, you know, let's, let's reclaim this plant net because it's the one we got. We better take care of, her, of our madrecita so she can take care of us. Yes, so beautiful. I want to end it there, but I always ask this question at the end. Um, I want to know how you both envision a changed world. And it could be through the lens of like access to food, housing, and medicine, or broadly. It's up to you. Yeah, well, I envision a changed world through everyone being able to share the deepest soul purpose and the deepest medicine. Um, the, 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 the transformed world is one which everyone has a deep listening and knowing of who they are. And from there, I feel like things will align. So folks aren't doing things because of a paycheck or because they were coerced to do it or because the media said you should or whatever, or even your parents there's something that's deep inside of you that's a, a offering that's a gift that's medicine for the world and when we share it that feeds in the, the needs and the place and the cracks and crevices that are that are asking for it so my prayer is for everyone to tap into their own particular medicine this was ours you know but really it's about like everyone um is sharing their medicine and being open to receive it from others amen um, for me, a changed world is similar. It's one in which we are all well. Um, you know, I align with this saying for the highest possible good of all beings um, and all beings everywhere across all dimensions, you know, from the microbiome um, of the soil to the microbiome of our gut. Um, you know, from, from the justice um, that can be present for, for all people um, to live free from suffering. Um, and, you know, that, that that is fully realized. 
so that we can all be well um, and that this the sacred hoop can be vibrant um, and that we can all be free and so may it be y'all are some of the most beautiful beings i have encountered wow this was deeply deeply nourishing thank you so much and thank you also for taking two hours out of your time sorry it went on for so long but i just couldn't I couldn't stop it. It was too good. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm on a mission to get these little known solutions out to as many people as possible. So please help me by sharing, leaving a like, and a review. If you would like to stay in the loop about future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast or my newsletter at cooperativejournal.com. Because I didn't say save the world, I said change the world, improve it, make it better than we find it.